Morning, Aaron. One of the first books I read on the character of God was A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book he writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And as we're standing here at the beginning of a new year, I think a corollary to that could be the most important thing about you in 2023 and about me in 2023 is what we think about God. And the attribute of God that we should spend the most time thinking about is his steadfast love. The steadfast love that endures forever, the steadfast of the Lord endures forever. That's the banner I want to fly over my life this year and over each of our lives. Or we could put it this way, that's the lens, the filter through which I hope each one of us views everything that comes into our lives here in 2023. So last Sunday, I set up my grandson's freight train here, and I'm sorry I don't have a bigger one. I I wish I had a big one so you guys in the back row could see it. But just want want to get this picture in our minds. If the engine represents our minds, okay, and every one of us, uh, our minds are pulling something. They're pulling, if you think of freight cars or, or flat cars. And what I hope is that when we think about biblical concepts, those freight cars are not empty, but they're full of meaning and understanding, but things like the steadfast love of God. So the first freight car that we hooked up last year, last week, okay, that wasn't last year, last week, was the point, steadfast love is the predominant expression of the character of God in the Old Testament. That was the first freight car. The second freight car was that steadfast love is God's posture toward repentant sinners who trust him. And I love the songs that the worship band led us in this morning, just to focus on God's amazing love for us as sinners when we come to him in humble repentance and trust. Now, some of you older guys thought that the OJs were the ones who came up with the idea of love train, but it goes way back before 1973. And this freight train of of God's steadfast love So I I hope this grows in our minds that we have great meaning. So when we read something like in Psalm 63 where David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. When we read that, that means something. It's not just words, but it means something. And we really say, yes, absolutely, God's steadfast love is much better than life itself. But we've got to fill these freight cars with meaning so that they carry that kind of weight when we come across those terms. So this morning we're going to look at the third point that we did not get to last, last week, and that is that God's steadfast love to us does not cease even in our sickness and adversity and hopelessness and apparent abandonment. And we're going to delve into Lamentations chapter 3 for this third freight car, and uh, I borrowed another one from my grandson, so this is what we're hooking up today for Lamentations chapter 3, that God's steadfast love does not cease even in our sickness and adversity and pain and feelings of rejection. And we're going to look at this through three questions. And the three questions I want to think about are, first, 
Is it okay to express your feelings of grief and pain and rejection to the Lord? Is that okay? Secondly, where do you go next? After pouring out your heart to the Lord, where do you go next? And then thirdly, what good does faith hold on to when you can't see anything good to hold on to? Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23 are probably very familiar to most of you. And they go like this if you want to turn there. Lamentations 3, 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Heavenly Father, would you please satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love so that in every day in 2023, we would be glad and rejoice in you. Lord, that's, that's a supernatural work, but you can do that by the power of your spirit. And we ask you to do that today and this year in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. These are wonderful verses, probably penned by the prophet Jeremiah, and they've been the inspiration for numerous songs and hymns that we sing, one of them being my favorite, Great is Thy Faithfulness, comes right out of this passage. But Jeremiah did not pen these verses on some exotic Mediterranean beach vacation. He wasn't sitting on his back porch looking out at some beautiful Judean sunset when he wrote these. He wrote these verses, in fact, the whole, this, his, this whole book of Lamentations in perhaps the darkest time in all of Israel's history. Around 587, 586 B.C., Jerusalem had, had just been totally destroyed by the Babylonians. Dead bodies in the streets, infants dying of starvation in their mother's arms. This is all in the book of Lamentations, okay? It's all right there. Cannibalism, mothers eating their own children. The palace was burned, walls of Jerusalem were broken down. King Zedekiah's sons had been slaughtered before his own eyes, and then his eyes poked out, and he's bound in chains and taken off to Babylon. And imagine what we would feel if that happened to Washington, D.C., and the president, a president that we loved and admired, and that happened to him. He was carted off to Russia. His, his eyes poked out. All of this, 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 it's devastating. You read through the book of Lamentations, and you will probably weep your eyes out. Well, Lamentations is a very carefully crafted book. And just looking at the chapters and versification, you can see that. So chapter 1, 22 verses. Chapter 2, 22 verses. Chapter 3, how many verses? Somebody have it open there? 66. Chapter 4, how many? 22. Chapter 5, how many? 22. So he is crafting this book very carefully. And the first four chapters are all acrostics. And you know what an acrostic is. So the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 in chapter 1, it starts with, it'd be our letter A. You know, A, verse 2 with B, verse 3 with C. That's chapter 1. That's chapter 2. 
That's also chapter 4. Chapter 5 is not an acrostic, but chapter 3 is unique. 66 verses in chapter 3, and it's in triplets. So verses 1, 2, and 3 all start with the Hebrew letter Aleph. Verses 4, 5, 6 each start with Aleph, Beit, and then, am I getting my Hebrew letters right, anybody? And then verses 7, 8, 9 start with Gimel and on through. So it's, it's unique in chapter 3. And what, what the writer appears to be doing is drawing our attention into chapter 3, and then right in the very center of chapter 3, right in the center of this book of horrendous suffering and grief are these amazing verses in the middle of of Lamentations chapter 3. So it's like he's saying, you know, even in the midst of all this suffering, the Lord's steadfast love indeed never ceases. So let's look at this together. And again, our first question, is it okay to express your feelings of grief and pain and rejection to the Lord? Well, there in chapter 3, if you look at, let's look at verses 16 through 20, right before the verses we're going to focus on. But in verses 16 through 20, Jeremiah writes, He, God, has made my teeth grind on gravel. He's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Is it okay to express our feelings? The answer is absolutely yes. Verses 17 to 20 express exactly how we can feel in the midst of extended trials, doesn't it? It expresses how the biblical writer often felt. No peace, no good, no hope, just hopelessness, affliction, grief can hardly hold your head up there in verse 20. Brothers and sisters, feeling this way is not a lack of faith. This is the reality of living in a broken world with its quest, with its injustices and all the, all the brokenness, living with our own sin and its consequences. And we can feel just like Jeremiah felt there. So this morning, what would you put in this basket of pain and suffering and hopelessness and feelings of abandonment, perhaps. What would you put there? All of us probably have trials or questions or injustices, disappointments and hurts that we've borne or are bearing, and and we can't make sense out of them, right? We know God is loving, and yet how in the world does this fit together? What would you put in that basket. I think it'd be a great thing if in your Bible you would jot down right there next to verses 70 to 20, jot down your pains, your griefs that that you can't figure out, that you don't understand. Put them down there. Can the Lord handle it? He can handle it, can't he? 
these cries of anguish by Jeremiah, they were not expressions of rebellion against God, but they were expressions of the agony of being under God's righteous discipline in the life of Israel and in the life in his own life. God was doing exactly what he promised his people he would do if they left him and worshipped idols like the nations around them. Prior to this in, verse th- verse, in chapter 3, if you look at the first 16 verses, almost every verse starts out with he, God, what God has done. All these bad things happening. Jeremiah acknowledges, Lord, you're the one who has brought this into our lives. You're the one. So is it okay to express our feelings? Thank God. It is very okay to express our grief, the things we don't understand, the whys. And the example of Jeremiah here, of Job, of the psalmist, so many places in the Old Testament, right, where express this kind of lament and grief, pouring out our hearts to the Lord. But the second question is, after we do that, where do we go next? Where do we go after pouring out our heart to him in our grief and anguish? Well, the Bible, again, gives us wonderful examples of where to go with our cries of grief and lament. And the the consistent example, whether it's in the Psalms or whether it's in Job or here, is that after they're done expressing their anguish, they don't slam the door and stomp off and leave God behind. Whether it's Job or Habakkuk or the Apostle Paul or our Lord Jesus, consistently their questions, their laments, do not end with them turning away from the Lord, from their Heavenly Father, but rather pressing in to their Heavenly Father. So when we express these laments and griefs, and then we don't run from Him, We press further into him. And look where Jeremiah goes next. This is so remarkable. It's so instructive for us. Because right after he's expressed his his hopelessness, his his grief, he says, there's nothing happy about life. I don't know any good right now. And then in verse 21, but this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. What, what do you and I call to mind when they're in the midst of that kind of confusion? Stuff just doesn't make sense. God, where are you? It is amazing where he turns, isn't it? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah is not saying that God's steadfast love was on pause for a little bit there. And it's going to be on pause for his 70 years of exile in Babylon. And then it's going to kick in again. That's not what Jeremiah is saying, is it? What is he saying about God's steadfast love in the middle of all this horrendous suffering? He is saying that even in the middle of this unbelievably severe period of suffering and discipline, 
Not one day has passed by in which God's mercies and steadfast love have not been active and newly present. Not one day. That can be a hard truth to swallow, isn't it? Because sometimes we, we don't see it. And we can go through days and think, I, I don't see it. I don't see anything good. I can't see any of God's love. How can God's love, steadfast love, be present and active in the midst of, say, the tragic and sudden death of a loved one? Or a terminal illness with interminable suffering? Or repeated physical and sexual abuse? How, how in the world can you say God's steadfast love is in the middle of that? Or you try to think about the Holocaust the Nazi, of the Nazis against the Jews in World War II. Or the genocide in Rwanda when the Hutus killed half a million of Tutsis. And if you're a Tutsi, you've got to be wondering, God said fast love, where in the world? My friends, there's, there's no way any of us will have complete answers to these kind of questions on this side of eternity. There are a lot of things we will not understand until we see the Lord face to face. But I think we can see and understand a little bit of it from our own life experience and from our parenting. So think about a few fairly simple illustrations and examples. I have some from my life. None of them are extraordinary. But I know you have illustrations in your own life that you can refer to as well. So Carol's parents owned a bookstore for about 25 years. And at one point, a hurricane, hurricane came through and took the roof off a bookstore. Now, water and wind isn't good for the interior of any building. But you also know that water and books is really a bad combination. I mean, and the books and stuff was just devastated. And the cleanup, the mess, trying to work with... with, with um, insurance and get everything back together. I mean, it's a mess. And one day, in the middle of it, one of them said, you know what? We were praying and asking the Lord for new carpet and new fixtures because this, this old building they were leasing desperately needed updating. And it dawned on them, the Lord's answered our prayer. And who would have expected a hurricane and, and so the very thing they, I don't know if they griped, okay, I wasn't, but I, the very thing they had been probably, Lord, why, 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 the day before, suddenly you realize this is God's steadfast love to us to provide in a way. And we can see that, right? How many of you have taken a loved one or a friend to the ER for something? And that's never on your desire to do list, right? A trip to the ER, it's just just an awful thought. Only to have something much more serious break out while they're in the hospital. Heart attack or a stroke or something. That's happened to both of Carol's parents in the last several years. They were in the hospital for something else. It's like another trip to the hospital. And then that happens, and they're right there, and immediately doctors are able to care for them and probably save their lives. Anybody else? Have you had that happen? You heard about a friend having that happen? And so the very thing that yesterday we were grumbling, it's like, oh, Lord. Today, suddenly, we're, we're, we're so thankful for it. Lord, thank you for that trip to the ER. 
but we couldn't see it at the moment, right? Most of us with a few years under our belts know of situations like this in our lives or friends' lives. So if we, with our limited knowledge, can see that clearly in some cases, isn't it reasonable to believe that our all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful Heavenly Father is working that in all cases? Isn't that what Romans 8.28 means? God causes hmm, a few things in my life. No. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. And brothers and sisters, a lot of times we can't see it. But isn't it reasonable to believe that he knows that? He is doing that? Because we do see it in some cases. Look at verse 24. In the midst of every difficult day, there's something you and I still have that can never be taken away. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. The most wonderful and loving and beautiful and powerful and gracious person in the universe is yours, my brother and sister. He is yours. And no one and nothing can ever take that away. He knows you. He loves you personally. In the midst of the worst day, you can say with Jeremiah, Lord, you are my portion today. You are my allotment. You're, you're my inheritance. About 12 years ago, I felt a lump in a place where lumps don't belong. And it took me about two seconds to think of the C word. And immediately, feelings of anxiety. And thankfully, the guys I was working with said, go, go get it checked. So I called Adam. Is Adam here this morning? I called Adam's dad. He's an he's a, um, MD. And he set me up for an ultrasound. And so while I was driving up to the doctor's office in Canton, what is it, about a 20, 30-minute trip, I thought, what should I think about right now? I need something to direct my thoughts. And so I said, I, th I think I'll listen to the songs. So I pulled out, I pulled out my Bible on CD. This, this is really cool. Some of you young people have probably never seen one of these. 79 seat, the entire Bible on 79 seat. Do they have anything like that still? It, it really cool. So I pulled out the one on Psalms and I put it in and I listened to about seven, Psalms 1 to 17 driving up to Canton. And, and it was a remarkable experience because the word of God, and these are psalms that I've read before, you've read them before, but in a very unique way, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me about his love for me personally. So in Psalm 1, verse 6, and it says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It was like the Lord saying to me, Phil, I know your way. I am committed to care for you. Psalm 5, you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. It's like he's saying to me, Phil, I will bless you. I will cover your life with favor as with a shield. It was, it was very unique and very real for me. 
in that situation. Psalm 16, verse 5, 11, the Lord is my chosen portion. And it's like, yes, Lord, you are my portion. And then verse 11, a verse so many of us love, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And it's like the Lord was speaking directly to me through his word. I don't think I'll ever forget the nearness and love of God in that moment of crisis, anxiety. Many of you I know can share similar stories from your walk with the Lord. Maybe that'd be a great thing at community group this week to share how has God ministered his love to you in the midst of situations that didn't look like love. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. That's one thing. No disaster, no tragedy can ever take away from you. Jeremiah goes on then. Let's read verses 25 to 30 because I want to get down to verse 31. So Jeremiah says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Christian life is a lot of waiting, isn't it? for stuff that we don't see yet, we don't figure it out. It is good for those, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. Then verse 31 starts with four. We're going to explain why is it good for us to wait for the Lord? Why can we say in verse 22, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love never ceases. Why can we be confident about that? Verses 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief... He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Notice several things here that Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says. First of all, in verse 31, the pain... Jeremiah and the believing Israelites were experiencing will not last forever, Jeremiah says. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Verse 32, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion. This pain will come to an end and we will experience God's compassion again. Secondly, in verse 32, The compassion that they'll experience is not parceled out in tiny morsels, but will be according to the abundance of God's steadfast love, right? Though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God's storehouses of goodness and steadfast love are not the size of your two-car garage. Think rather about those warehouses, those, the carpet industry up in Dalton and these warehouses that are bigger than football fields. And imagine them filled with shelves from floor to ceiling, packed, stacked with the goodness of God. 
and the steadfast love of God, some of which you will experience in this life, all of which you and I will experience for all eternity. God's steadfast love is not packed into a little two-car garage or rent rental locker somewhere. It is abundant for every one of us. And then thirdly, and this is verse 33, God's affliction or his discipline of us is, can we say, with only half his heart. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. By contrast, God's goodness and kindness come to us not only in abundance, as verse 32 says, but with all his heart. One of my favorite scriptures by the same author, Jeremiah, and to these same people before they went into captivity, is Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41, where God promises and says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and with all my soul. But here, talking about the affliction that the Lord has brought, it says, he does not afflict from his heart. But his goodness and his kindness and love to us are with all his heart and with all his soul. This is a mystery in the perfect character of God that we may never fully comprehend. God is not double-minded. He doesn't have a split personality. It'd be blasphemy to attribute that to God. It'd be also blasphemous to think of God as at war with himself, where his love is fighting against his holiness and said, no, stop, stop. God is not double-minded or a split personality like this. John Piper helps us to sort this out. He says here, thinking about Lamentations 3, he says, the final word is not destructive judgment, but forgiving compassion. Neither cancels out the other, but Jeremiah declares that the abundance of God's steadfast love will have the last word. Causing affliction and grief has its place in the expression of God's justice and holiness against sin. But more central to God's nature is the abundance of his steadfast love. Affliction and grief are not from God's heart, what Jeremiah said there. Rather, from his heart of heart, so to speak, come compassion and steadfast love. Human illustrations always break down when we're trying to understand God, but they can help. So parents, when you discipline your children, do you do it with as much of your heart and soul as when you're giving them a Christmas gift that you just can't wait for them to open? I don't think so. We know that disciplining our kids is the right thing to do when they're defiantly disobeying, don't we? We know that's the right thing to do. We even know that it's a loving thing to do. Hebrews 12, 6 the Lord disciplines the son he loves. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. 
So we know it's the right thing to do. We know it's the loving thing to do. But don't we do it with some degree of reluctance still? My mom used to say, maybe your mom that do this hurts me more than it hurts you. And apparently that happened some in our family also because John told us the other day, he said, Dad, that, ce- that piece of cedar wood you used to, the cedar siding, it didn't hurt. But the rubber scraper did, okay? But if you and I, as sinful, very imperfect parents, can deeply love our own children even while we are inflicting grief on their backsides, if we can do that, doesn't it make sense that your heavenly Father's steadfast love for you has not ceased even in the midst of the affliction he brings into your life? So by application, how do we hook up our caboose to this love train, this train of God's steadfast love in the midst of our pain and suffering? What do you have in your basket of affliction this morning? What griefs, afflictions has your Heavenly Father brought into your life at this time? And the specific question I'm thinking about by way of application is, how do we fight the fight of faith in the midst of our adversity and suffering when we're struggling to find any evidence of God's steadfast love? So four thoughts here in closing. First is something not to do. Please do not allow yourself to think that your trials are worse than everyone else's. They may be very, very difficult. They're not worse than everyone else, anyone else's or everyone else's. Well, Jeremiah doesn't understand how difficult my trials are. This almost never knew my grief. Apostle Paul may have had it difficult, but not like I have. My mistreatment, my trauma, my rejection is worse than everybody else's. Even Jesus doesn't understand. Ever tempted to feel that way? I'm, I'm sure at times we are. Your pain may truly be horrendous and excruciating. Please don't let yourself go down that rat hole of lies. Your heavenly father understands. He, he's the one who gave us the book of Lamentations. He's the one in the middle of Lamentations who gave us his promise, his steadfast love never ceases. So faith clings to God's unchanging, steadfast love written on practically every page of the Bible, but expressed most clearly at Calvary where we see Jesus hanging on a cross. He hung there for you. And if you don't think he understands your grief, read Psalm 22. He understands injustice and mistreatment and abandonment and rejection. So don't let yourself think that your trials are worse than everybody else's. Secondly, let the Holy Spirit comfort you with God's word and assure you through his word and through the fellowship of his people Again, think about our parenting and our children. Have have your children at times just not let you comfort them? And it's understandable in rare moments of extreme grief or fear or pain. 
But at other times, it's just willful re- a willful refusal to be comforted, right? It's a resistance to your loving words and your assurance and truth and comfort. And at times, don't we act toward our Heavenly Father in the same way? We're hurting. We're lost. We feel like He's forgotten us. He is there to assure us and comfort us and remind us of His steadfast love through His Word or through brothers and sisters. But just like our children do to us, we willfully refuse. We won't pick up his love letter. I don't want to read that. We won't listen to words of genuine encouragement and truth from a brother or sister. We can be determined to remain in our self-pity and our feelings of abandonment. My dear brother and sister, if you're in that mode this morning, please, of that. Let the Holy Spirit minister God's love to you through his word, through people here who love you and care for you. Don't, don't be like our own stubborn children. Let him minister his word. And thirdly, rehearse out loud God's goodness and kindness to you. It may be in prayer, maybe in singing, it may be in community group, but rehearse it out loud. Another thing we've all done with our kids is make them say out loud certain things that they don't really feel, they don't want to admit, but that are nonetheless true. So we've told our kids, tell your brother you're sorry for getting angry and breaking his new toy. Eyes averted. <laughs> tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry. No. Look him in the eye and tell him you're sorry. I'm sorry. Why, why do we do that? I, I think it's because we know p- part of what happens when we have to articulate the truth, even though we don't feel it, is it help, helps us to sort of reinforce and, okay, it's, it's a step toward Believing what I don't yet believe. Tell mommy thank you for the yummy food she made tonight. So, when you don't feel like God loves you, what do you say to him? What do you recount? What do you recall? What do you articulate out loud? Do you rehearse the things you don't have? Or do you rehearse and say out loud ways that God has been so gracious and generous to you? Do you recite them out loud? Singing together on Sunday mornings is another place where this is really important. There are times when I don't want to sing. It's like, I don't believe that. Uh Uh-uh. Those are the times when you and I need to not just listen to other people sing or not just stand there. We need to rehearse, sing, pray out loud. Because wh- why do we do this? Because something happens in our hearts when we are singing and saying things. You know, I'm not quite sure I believe this, but it's true. But that cultivates that. And so s- sing out. You, you don't have to have a good voice, brothers and sisters. You know, make a joyful noise. Aaron read that this morning, right? And we can sing out loud and cultivate in our hearts faith. And what God tells us is true about him. 
So when the Holy Spirit whispers to you, tell your Heavenly Father, thank you. Tell Him, thank you for His steadfast love. How do you respond? And then finally, live in God's Word. Swim in it. Bathe in it. And David and Leanne, if you come come here, come back with it, man, we're going to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness here in just a minute. You know, I love God's Word. The older I get, the more meaningful my times with the Lord and the Word tend to be. But there are also times, many days, it's a fight to open this book, right? Or to pull out my audio Bible, right? And it's, it's a battle, dullness of heart, distractions. But th- this is where the love of God is expressed to us. So live in this book, brothers and sisters. Make this a priority. Uh, we, we, we can't know the love of God if we're not listening to his voice. So just to close, a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8. These are great verses to live in. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his verses, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who cares who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously along with him graciously give us all things? Let's stand and sing. Great is thy faithfulness.